You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. All right, hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he insists that you keep your hands and arms inside the roller coaster at all times. It's Mr. Jeff McLaughuge. <laughs> wait, wait, can you put your arms without your hands outside the roller coaster? I'm or- wily. <laughs> <laughs> I would think that it, you can't do one without the other unless you've already you don't done know it me. once. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm capable of. Exactly. I guess you. I guess you could stick your arms out if you're like doing like, like, like no chicken dancing on the roller coaster. (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say. That's the only way it's gonna happen. Is the the cheap cheap song. (laughs) What's going on? How Uh, are you? I'm. You know what? I'm all right. I heard um, an insult today that I've been sort of letting rattle around in my head as a really interesting description of somebody. Maybe you've. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but someone was described to me in a. Negative manner as almost a used car salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that means that the used car salesperson is the measure of terribleness, and I'm not sure which side of the other almost they are. <laughs> they, but I've they been, have all, I, all the moral givings of a used car salesman. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know that that's the case. Like I've like I, I've bought used cars from perfectly nice used car salesmen. I've also bought used cars from terrible salespeople. Used car yep. salespeople. And I, I wonder what that means. Like, I had to sit sit and sort of think about it really in detailed context. Like, how could you use that, you know, four or five different ways to describe somebody and all of it is bad. <laughs> it's just it's relative to where they are in relation to how you perceive used car salespeople. One of the nicest used car salesmen I've ever met in my entire life is the one who sold me that piece of shit Volkswagen. <laughs> yep, that'll teach you. Yeah. But then again, again, that was made by... Volkswagen, a company filled with people who are almost used car salespeople. <laughs> this wasn't so much an insult. I came out with one this uh, this past season at the haunted house. I was, you know, sailing into this kid, and then he goes, "All right, whatever, get moving, loser." I'm like, "Get moving, dude! I will buy a house in your neighborhood and start dating your math teacher." <laughs> Well, that person, Bill, sounds like they were almost a used car salesperson. Yeah. On the other side of that, um, one of my customers early on in the season this year, they recognized me. They go, you're the one that gave us that advice last year. And I was like, oh, no. What, what, what did I say? And they said, no, no, no. You said, when life hands you lemons, make chicken burritos and then throw <laughs> the lemons away because you don't need those to make chicken burritos. I was like, well, yeah, that sounds like me. And then she says, no, you don't understand. I like wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. And me and my friends say that to each other all the time. Well, life hands you lemons, make chicken burritos. (laughs) Well, it's good that that kind of quippy retort has legs. Yeah. At least walked for, you know, walked enough to walk with one other person that may not have been there and lasted a year. Yeah. Sounds like you're on the verge, Bill. Oh, yeah. I'm going viral. I, I missed my calling. I should have been on a Hallmark card writer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get this podcast to go viral for three years now. And then the yeah, best the I got best. is chicken, chicken burritos. I was going to say, we're not going viral as much as we are sort of like limited fungus. Dormant. <laughs> Dormant dorm- bacteria. <laughs> All right. You know what is popular? It's very popular and always well-received. Jeff, the trivia question this week. This is fun. Which movie star has had more sword-fighting scenes than any other movie star? Can I ask a clarifying question? If you feel you must. American movies movie star? Yes. Okay. All right. I had to to think about it. Well, I I mean, if it's not, then I definitely have the answer. But if, if it is, then I 
I'm pretty sure I have the answer, but different person. But this is going to be the week beginning November the 21st. And uh, hey, holiday coming up, Jeff. So uh, we'll have you start this week. Well, I'm very thankful for that, Bill. Thank you. Uh, November 21st, 2019, super villain in training and possible <laughs> cyborg. Elon Musk announces the Tesla electric Cybertruck on stage at the International Auto Show, touts that it has shatterproof glass, and invites a person to hurl a giant ball bearing through the glass, which they do, and the glass shatters all over the stage. (laughs) (laughs) It's the most fantastic supervillain self-own ever. And the video of it is on YouTube if you want to watch it. I watched it like 30 times today, and it never stopped being funny. Now, you said that was, what, 2019? Yes. Those aren't for sale, are they? <laughs> nope. Nope. They never really got that shatterproof glass technology straightened out enough to go on sale. <laughs> and they got beaten to the market by Ford with the Lightning 150 and the Maverick and the Rivian, which is another company's electric truck, and some other ones. GM is supposed to be putting one out. So yeah. I think uh, it was more like, well, look what I can do. And then, oh, and then people will just forget that stuff really quickly, I guess. That's uh, that's kind of my thing with Elon Musk. I don't usually get into the whole, like, protesting kind of thing. But whenever Elon Musk announced that he was just going to buy Twitter because he didn't like what Twitter was doing, I was like, okay, I'm deleting my account. And I, and I haven't been on Twitter since that announcement has been made. And as of this recording, it's still in limbo. Yeah, it's definitely going back and forth. Now, so who knows yeah. what will happen with that. I don't use the Twitter as evidenced by my inability to get the Twitter trivia question right a couple weeks back. Yeah. Uh, but I will say this about Elon supervillain Musk is that I've watched a couple of interviews with him just mm-hmm. in general. And every time he talks, he sounds exactly like a normal human being. And yet, in my mind's eye, for those of you that know giant monster movies, he sounds exactly like... Paul Freeze's voice in Doctor Who as Doctor Who in King Kong Escapes. So if you want to have some fun, go find that movie. And every time King Kong Escapes talks about robot King Kong or digging up Element <laughs> X, imagine Elon Musk, because that's all I can do. I also imagine his, his former wife Grimes, every time she opens her mouth, modem tones come out. <laughs> I saw a picture, like a meme of Elon Musk that said, when this guy smiles... It still looks like a frown. And right. it's so true. Yeah. Yeah, he looks uh, like somebody who's uh, a lot like a used car salesperson. <laughs> Almost. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad all that money, knowledge, and power is just left to Elon Musk. Right. And his and his children whose names look like a cat ran across the keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I yeah, I can imagine. Um, I, I will say this, and again, you know, as much fun as we poke at Elon Musk for the Cybertruck stupidity, he's also kind of managed to roll out some cool stuff, like the solar panel program through Solar City and the big high-capacity battery that you can buy from him and some other stuff. Yep. And and he was able to pull a car company together. I mean, admittedly, he bought it, but he was able to pull a car company together and get it to market, which it wasn't able to do before. So, you know... Props to him. Just test the window first. And those SpaceX rockets that like land at like 90 miles an hour on the dime. Right. He's a genius and he's, uh, uh, you know, the the future next Bond villain. But uh, yeah, he definitely definitely looks like somebody who should his next invention is going to be a cape and a monocle (laughs) so that he he can demand a ransom for like the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) <laughs> it's been a doomsday, the Eiffel Tower. All right, moving on to the 22nd, uh, November the 22nd, 1995, Toy Story opens in theaters, and Toy Story is the first full-length feature movie to be completely CGI. Think about that compared to maybe 10 years before, that fully CGI was the Money for Nothing video. Yeah, almost exactly 10 years before, right? 1985, yeah. 1985, and how far things... Well, I guess that's what happens when Apple and Disney kind of join forces. Which is where Pixar came from. Which is how Elon Musk was hatched, I'm sure. <laughs> he was rendered, Bill. He was rendered. <laughs> he, he's not a real person. He's a he's a three-dimensional construct. But Toy Story, the fact that it was first doesn't negate the fact that it is still the standard by which virtually all CGI films are measured. That says something about the quality of the writing and the filmmaking as well as the graphical component. Because yep. 
even today in 2022, that movie holds up as an enjoyable film to watch. And it's incredibly easy to suspend disbelief as if you're watching a bunch of actual toys. I really enjoy it. Yeah. And I mean, well, it's very well cast. You have Tom mm-hmm. Hanks, who's, you know, brilliant. And yep. I really like how Don Rickles, who played Mr. Potato Head, he just throws in, what are you looking at, you hockey puck? And the <laughs> camera pans over, and it was a hockey puck. Yeah. Which was, you know, a nice little nod to the parent, you know, for the parents that are watching it with the kids. Grandparents. You know, that, you know, the, the grandparents, grandparents yeah. who are watching that with the kids. Because <laughs> yeah. Don Rickles was, I mean, I had to go back and look up who, what that meant because I, he was off TV by the time I was a kid. I mean, we're the same age, but I knew who Don Rickles was and his, uh, and the hockey puck line. And yeah, all that. I, nope, and my, that, my one, parents, that one right over my head. Oh, my parents are fans, so I, I knew about it from that. There's some other, like, all sorts of, like, little tiny Easter eggs all over those movies. I know there's a certain scene where you can see the carpet from The Shining, and then the license plate says, um, I don't know if it says THX1138 or if it just says 1138 as yeah. a nod to Lucasfilm. Right. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As far as I know, I haven't seen all of them, but as far as I know, all of the Toy Story sequels are excellent, too. Yeah, they are. And it was the success of Toy Story that sort of painted Pixar's hand with via John Lasseter. So he also directed my favorite of all of their CGI films, Monsters, Inc., and The Incredibles, and a film that we're going to talk about later. Frozen. Although I don't know that he directed Frozen. I think he produced it. There wasn't uh, a thing that you could do at one time, but it, you know the information went viral and then everybody was doing it, so now they don't do it anymore. But it used to be if you went to Disney World and you saw some of the walk-around characters from Toy Story and you said, Andy's coming, they would just drop to the ground and make believe they weren't real like they do in the movie. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but then everybody found out about it, and then like the people were just like, that's it, we can't be doing this anymore. Yeah, they're going to get concussions, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on to the 23rd. November 23rd, 1979, Pink Floyd's The Wall, possibly the best two-record album that's ever been released, is released, and it sells 6 million copies in two weeks. I hate that album and everything it stands for. <laughs> I, I still have my copy from 1979. Oh, do you? Sound, you know what it sounds like? A, a copy of The Wall from 1979. <laughs> That's, you can't even hear it. It just sounds like a collection of scratches. But I have it on CD and stuff. But yeah, yeah. I, have the, I have the original one that we bought when I was a kid. I have it on vinyl just for like display purposes. Um, I don't think I've actually listened to it. I bought it you know, at a store somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've said, I'm, I don't really spend a lot of time with vinyl. I discovered... Pink Floyd pretty late. I was like a senior in high school, I think, and somebody showed me the first 20 minutes of the movie of Pink Floyd, The Wall, and I instantly just gravitated towards it. And I listened to that album and watched that movie so much when I was 17 years old that at a point I'm at a point now where if I'm going to listen to The Wall, I'll listen to a live version of it or I'll listen to the Roger Waters live version of it or something. It's actually rare that I go and listen to the album itself because I listened to it so much over the years that there's nothing left for me to hear. Oh, I, I am all studio album for that. And oh, really? I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you tales out of school. When I, I saw this, the midnight movie when it premiered. Yep. And I absolutely hated every nanosecond of it. I think I was <laughs> 15 when it came out. Maybe I was younger than that. Right. And I, I hated it. I didn't understand it. I didn't want to. I didn't want to stay in. I just couldn't stand it. I hated it. Hated it. Hated it. Yeah. And then about three years later, it clicked, and and I watched it on somebody's laserdisc player, huh. and it was astonishing how how good it was. And I and all of a sudden, it all made sense to me, and I couldn't believe I didn't like it when I saw it at Cinema One Forty. Yeah, I Go think figure. you said this to me some years ago, probably about the same time Ian was about. 16 17 is that album is a perfect album for an angry young teenager it is and i certainly like i said gravitated towards it and uh going back to what i was saying before that i rarely listen to the studio album it's not that i don't like it it's just that there's almost nothing left for me to hear right and i like on like on the live version if you get the um is anybody out there from their 1979 tour 
there's certain songs that got cut out of the vinyl bit of you know for time restraints like right. um what shall we do now mm-hmm. and if, and an instrumental called the last few bricks and the show must go on actually has another verse like an extra verse thrown in so yeah the live version i think because it has little different nuances thrown in like that mm-hmm. that's why i gravitate towards it because i th- those songs are not as worn out in my mind as the rest of the album right 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 and when the tigers broke free is another one that's like it it's a great song it's an amazing song it just didn't make it to the album Nope. All right. Two now. Next day up is November the twenty fourth, which this year is Thanksgiving Day. It a day is. for families to get together and just argue, <laughs> argue, and argue, and, and complain and everything. Yeah. We stopped getting together with family a couple of years back. Um, I don't know when that'll happen again. It seems like everyone was pretty happy going to their neutral corners. Uh-huh. So, I, are you figure. pro Thanksgiving or ambiguous? I've always enjoyed Thanksgiving quite a bit. Uh-huh. I have appreciated the ones that I've done here at my house, but I always enjoyed going down to see my family. When I was married, this was the holiday that we went to travel to see my family, and we stayed up here and saw my wife's family for Christmas. I like right. Thanksgiving more than Christmas just in general, but that was always always made it special. Yep. But, you know, in the last few years, what I've been doing since we've, one, been staying home and two, been vegetarians is making some sort of weird, ornate vegetable dish for everybody. And it's a lot of fun. I don't do the tofurkey thing. What I've been, what I've made last year and the year before were vegetarian Swedish meatballs with uh, mashed potatoes and apple turnovers and apple pie and like fresh corn and some other stuff. It's all. All really, really good. And then uh, I spend the rest of the day cleaning up. Yeah. To be honest, I I, I kind of don't care about Thanksgiving. It just seems like a lot of work and a lot of food that goes to waste. Uh, <laughs> and turkey, turkey is not something that I eat any other day of the year. I, right. I don't even buy turkey slices at the deli. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I was never a turkey guy when I was eating meat either. I would have like the very a rare maybe once a year turkey sandwich from a sub shop and that was it. Yeah. Your brother used to do those big Thanksgiving mm-hmm. uh spreads there and he's the one that turned me on to French dressing which I started yes. making like on my own. That's super good. Yeah, delicious stuff. I yeah. like all the sides and things that that are fun to make and I always enjoyed those more than I enjoyed the turkey. Yep. And I certainly enjoy it more than I enjoy talking about politics. <laughs> Yeah, I don't generally do that. I just try and find, you know, funny stuff to talk about at Thanksgiving. It makes it more fun. Yep. You know, generally my family's pretty funny anyway, so. Yes, yeah. This year, as of this recording, because we're recording weeks in advance like uh, like mm-hmm. we do, but uh, this year I should be in Cincinnati for Thanksgiving. I got invited out, my, my friend and friend of the show, Taylor, uh, to go hang out with her and her husband for Thanksgiving this year. And I have a bunch of other friends in or, and around Cincinnati, so I'm going to see a bunch of them, and then I'll come home. Nice. That sounds like fun, though. I, yeah. I mean, you know, the traveling out to, to go do stuff is always – it's always good once you get back into the rhythm of doing that. I used to go to Florida every time, mm-hmm. and I've just uh, – I decided to kick the jukebox a little bit this year. I, I don't I don't blame you. Yeah, just change things up, you know. And I probably won't do Swedish meatballs this year. I'll probably do something like I make this weird homemade noodle green spinach lasagna, which is really good and the kids really like. So maybe I'll make that and a giant mess cir- to go with it. Maybe I'll circle back around New Hampshire on my way home from Cincinnati. There you go. Well, I'll have some green lasagna for you if you want. All right. Moving on to the 25th. November 25th, 2013, Disney releases the Frozen original motion picture soundtrack, which sells 10 gajillion copies. Yep. Uh, and wins a Grammy for Best Soundtrack or Visual Media in, in 2014. And p- provides the greatest moment in the history of televised Grammys when John Travolta announces the winner of the award, who is not the singer of the song, Adina <laughs> Mandel. And <laughs> completely baffling everybody who's watching the show because her name is literally all over the Frozen soundtrack. Huh? You can watch oh. a clip of that. Hold on, I'll, I'll play the soundbite right now. Oh, here's fantastic. Our good, here's our good friend and former Worst Song Ever alumni, John Travolta. Please welcome the wickedly talented one and only Adele Dazeen. Yeah, that's not her name. No, that's not even close to her it's name. It's not. 
It's not. It, he calls herself like strange, sort of made up, almost uh, Arab sounding name, and yeah, that's nah. not even like a like a bad mispronunciation, <laughs> like uh, like nope. Raya Johnstone. Uh, it's Johnson. Right. <laughs> no, it would it would it would be like if he he named her like you know Kinjute Yokohama. Like it's just it's just as out of out of place as names go to Adina Menzel as that. But yeah, it was super funny. I remember laughing at that for half an hour. So circling back around to a worst song ever that we did uh, last year, I'd say when we did um, Four Non Blondes, "What's Up?" Oh yes. One of my biggest gripes about that song is the karaoke aspect of it where every girl in the world that thought that they could sing would get up and do that song so they could just belt and man that was the case with with frozen with the song let it go oh god i mean yeah there's a couple of shining stars out there but for the most part it was just women screeching let it go shut up please i I think some of it may have been because they were within earshot of children between the ages of like two and a half and seven and a half. Mm-hmm. So they probably literally heard that song 786 times a day. I know I did for a while. And Meg didn't even love that record. Uh. But we heard it a lot. A lot. A lot. A lot. <laughs> a, a, a lot. And it's like earwormy. Like you have to like sing it just to like exercise it out of your system or something (laughs) yes hilariously it's so well known that it becomes a fantastic punchline and i used to use it as a punchline in when i was delivering training about what to do if you find yourself dealing with like the 80 20 principle and you can either put in the effort to add the other 20 percent of whatever it is to make it like the way you would do it or you could let it go and i'd start to sing the song and everybody would cackle so it was very funny So you and I have a different definition of excellent punchline at this point. Well, again, it made it, in a room full of Department of Health and Human Services workers, it was a it was a hit. Ah. Noted. All right. Moving on to the twenty sixth. November the twenty sixth, nineteen twenty two. Archaeologist Howard Carter and Lord Carnivon. That's his name. Yes. Look into King Tutankhamun's tomb, better known as King Tut. Uh, Born so in Arizona. Lord, uh, yeah, had a condo. Made a stoner. So Lord, and I just said his name one time. I'm probably going to say it differently this time. <laughs> Carnivon, he financed the whole thing. And then yep. he ended up dying like five months later due to an infected mosquito bite. Now, this started the rumor because he died five months later. Right. So a lot of people started to speculate, including your friend and mine, Arthur Cannon Doyle, like Sherlock Holmes author. He uh, also believed in fairies. So like his yes, grip on yeah. reality was a little tenuous at times. I'm just going to put right, but, wrote uh, great detective yeah. stories, but kind of nuts. Yep. So uh, Doyle, uh, Arthur, Arthur Doyle thought or presented that uh, Lord Conorvon's death was caused by protections put in place by King Tut's priest to guard the royal tomb. That's exactly what a writer of, like, at that time, strange detective fiction would think. I don't, I don't, yeah. I would think the same thing if I was him. I'd also think, yeah, oh, gosh, I, these stories are making me a ton of money. What am I doing reading about Lord Carnivon and his stupid mosquito bite when I could be out chasing down the fairer ladies of London? <laughs> I'm I'm quite sure if this had happened like 50 years later, L. Ron Hubbard would have been all over that. Right. It would have been space demons from the planet Blarb. <laughs> space hookers, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's there's always like some like cause and effect, and the skeptics community, you know, there's that old adage that correlation is not causation. Cor- yeah, correlation doesn't equal causation. I am skeptical of that belief. Yeah. <laughs> But it's like that was like he opened up the tomb five months ago and then he gets a mosquito bite that got infected and killed him. And they think it was the tomb that did it. I think it was the mosquito. Yeah, I sort of look at this as saying like it's like I ate it like Ralph's dangerous pizza five months ago and then I die of, you know, food poisoning five months later. And they blame the pizza, even though, you know, I probably was eating something else between five months ago and now. Now, do they have a lot of mosquitoes in Egypt? Because that's a bigger question to ask. I'm pretty sure mos- there's mosquitoes just about everywhere. And if they're, they are in Egypt, somebody would have brought some. 
Well, I'm going to argue that point because mosquitoes tend to hang around stagnant water. And in Egypt, a desert, there's not a lot of stagnant water. Uh, well, like I said, they seem to be everywhere. So uh, we're going to go from one myth to another myth. Uh, Jeff, what do we have for All the right, 27th? November 27th. This is the, uh, the one item that Bill and I have run across a few years now, and we've talked about it, and we've looked for information about it, and we haven't found anything about it, but it still shows up in the places that we go to find our content for the show. In 1911, audience throws vegetables at actors for the first recorded time in the United States, which on its face sounds absolutely rational. Until you think, mm-hmm. like, 1911 is pretty friggin' recent, considering the history of theater. Like, the Greeks had theater. Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare was, what, 15th century? Yeah. And I'm it sure was they, theater, you I'm know? I'm sure they yeah, bounced a, a potato ago. or two off of him. <laughs> Circling back around, by the way, uh, are there mosquitoes in Egypt? Yes, according to two sources. So, there's confirmation. One of those guys was hot Lord Carnivan. A bloody <laughs> mosquito bit me. So... Uh, getting back to the tomatoes. So, yeah, there's been theater all this time, but I think 1911, we're talking about, like, vaudeville acts. I you know? I'm making noises because I don't know the answer. Uh, and also in 1911, yeah. I, I wonder how many – well, I guess you could still probably buy a lot of uncanned vegetables at that time, too. There was a big period yeah. where a lot of, I guess, urban areas that would have had theaters would have probably had only prepared vegetables, for lack of a better description. Yeah, you would – I mean, there was no supermarkets back then. The right. Piggly Wiggly didn't open up until much later. So you would have this like guy like parking his you know his vegetable cart outside the theater. Get the tomatoes here. Right. And, Cabbages, yeah. two heads for a dollar. <laughs> so um, two heads for a nickel in that economy, right? Um, and then I mean that's a, like a like an old cliche, but like I'm I'm gonna make the argument that I think this 1911 sounds about right because. Prior to vaudeville, theater was a lot more structured, where you're you're actually watching plays, right? You know, not just like roaming acts and stuff like that. True. So it's not like some harumpher is going to show up. Um, you know, you call that taming of a shrew? I beseech thee, and there's just like throw a tomato onto the stage. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the story is for why an audience may have thrown vegetables for the first recorded time. Maybe that was part of the show. Maybe that was how yeah. you paid the actors. Maybe it was the all-vegetarian production of, you know, Melville's Moby Dick. I don't know. Who knows? Nobody knows, Bill. No one. Some turn-of-the-century invocation of the uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show right. or something. Yes, exactly. Great. Scott, tomato, potato, carrot. <laughs> Maybe the play was called The Salad Days. Hmm? Uh, uh, mm? The big sign on the wall that says no pomegranates because they're too goddamn messy. <laughs> it was the, the first the first incarnation of the Veggie Tales. <laughs> All right, let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. November the 21st, 1945. A woman who has been beautiful in many different ways uh, her entire life. Goldie Hawn. Oh, yeah. I remember her from such films as Private Benjamin and, and my favorites, uh, Overboard, where she met and ended up marrying uh, her husband, Kurt Russell, and House Sitter, which I watched on a plane. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, with the, that's the one with Steve Martin, right? Yes, where she's uh, they continuously lie to one another, which is yeah. pretty funny. She got her start with laughing mm-hmm. and all that. The first movie I remember her being in was a Chevy Chase vehicle called Seems Like Old Times. Ah. But I literally remember nothing about that. Matter of fact, when we talked about Chevy Chase a couple of months ago, we brought up Foul Play. Right. Which is another movie that uh, they, the two of them did together. Right. But, yeah, I don't remember it seems like old times. I think they just you know threw that together because it, the, the other one worked so well. What was the name of that movie that she did? She was like a basketball coach. Uh, that was Wildcats. Wildcats. I watched that. You know what? I watched that movie... A bunch of times because it used to come on HBO a lot uh, whenever uh, I was a teenager or mm-hmm. so. I watched that movie a bunch and I couldn't remember the name of it for the life of me. She was a staple on early cable TV. Like all of her films I remember seeing. I think I literally saw all of them on cable. So Private Benjamin, Swing Shift, which was set in the 1940s. Protocol, which was she was supposed to be like a diplomat. And then Wildcats Overboard, Bird on a Wire with Mel Gibson. All of those were all like in constant rotation on HBO and Showtime when I was a kid. 
Uh, moving on to the 22nd. November 22nd, 1958. A woman who would defy the term scream queen, but ultimately defined the acting role of scream queen, Jamie Lee Curtis, who first uh-huh. burst onto the scene as Laurie in Halloween. Yep, Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode, and is currently playing the character of Laurie Strode in Halloween <laughs> 57, Michael Myers Collect Social Security, whatever it's called now. But yep. in the midst of that, she worked her way through a couple of other slasher films in the 1980s, but then forced her way out and started doing other roles. Yeah, she was in that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, True Lies. That was really good. She, yes. And she was really she good was in it. fantastic in that film. She was fantastic in Knives Out. I don't know if you've Hell seen yeah, that. That I was great. That, yep. Um, and all those commercials for yogurt. Oh yeah. I remember there was a long period of time where she wasn't making any movies, but she was pitching Activio yogurt. We would make the joke that she was going to start making movies once again, once she got her shit together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's funny. She's the, she's the daughter of, uh, of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. Yep. Definitely carried on the family tradition by being a fantastic actor. She definitely picked up all of the whatever good genes you could get from both parents into a single package because she's been good in everything she's been in. All right. Moving on to the 23rd. Somebody who hasn't been good in everything he's been in. Uh, <laughs> November 23rd, 1948. Bruce Valanche, a, uh, a, com- a comedy writer, if, if you could call him that. Probably best known for writing the Star Wars holiday special. Yeah, that's what I- he wrote. Have you ever seen that? I did. I saw it when it was when it was broadcast. That's how long ago it was when I watched it. I remember being very disappointed in in what it was. But again, it was like 1978, right? And t- 99% of TV was garbage, like the Star Wars holiday special. 98% of television was variety shows. In yes. That- I've never seen the Star Wars holiday special. Mm-hmm. Okay, judge me all you want, but I've never seen it. I won't judge. I you. own three copies of it I at own. least but i've never watched it mm-hmm. i've tried don't think i haven't tried but it was set up like a variety show the star wars holiday special and like harvey corman's in it b arthur b arthur yeah. and diana at the carroll end of it jefferson starship Jeff- diana oh, carroll yeah. oh, you, well you haven't seen it but i remember no seeing no it, i so. just no, I do. I, I, well, I watched a documentary of it. So, oh, okay. Yeah. She was the girl in that, like, spacesuit singing, right? She was the one who did, like, the sultry singing to yeah. Chewbacca's grandfather, Lumpy, that made them all excited. <laughs> I can't believe I remember this this well. Um, yeah. And, again, I haven't spent any time with this stupid thing since it was originally on. Well, those scars well, run deep, apparently. Boy, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the first time I remember hearing Jefferson Starship. And... I thought then, at the tender young age I was in 1978, like, this band kind of sucks, and it's yeah. never changed from that They're time. They're going to end up on my podcast. These guys suck, yeah. Well, Bruce Blanch used to write for stuff like The Sonny and Cher Show, and The Captain and Tennille Show, and The Osmond Family Show, and- Oh, jeez. That's all was, he did was variety oh, shows? Oh, it was a bunch of variety shows, yeah. There was some sitcom stuff, but he did almost all variety shows at that time. He used to do a bunch of stuff for Paul Williams. He wrote some of the script, I think, for Phantom of the Paradise, which isn't a terrible movie by any stretch of the imagination that Paul Williams is in. And yep. he, he started showing up as like a sort of a nod to character acting in the 80s. He was in Ice Pirates and some other like grade Z science fiction comedies. He's not a sure. funny. It, again, say what you want. Like I say this all the time. Bruce Blanche isn't funny. Whoever gave him a typewriter should have their fingers broken. <laughs> Yeah, the, ma- the what they call those in the on the variety shows they call those beer jokes. Yeah, and um, I think I think our friend uh, Bruce over here had too much beer. It's entirely right, possible. We go to the twenty fourth, November twenty fourth, nineteen sixty eight. American composer and piano player Scott Joplin is born. Best known, perhaps. Probably best known. Probably for. best known for the song Maple Leaf Rag, which if you don't know it. I don't. You sh- it's like it's a piano ragtime rag. It's like the first really yeah. super popular ragtime song. Right. He also did the Entertainer, if I yes. believe, if I'm, if my sources are correct. Yep. Yep. So uh, Scott Joplin, interesting guy. All right. Let's circle back around. This is the circle back around episode. Mm-hmm. Let's circle back around to a worst song ever that we had a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Oh. The Pipkins. Yeah, I hate That's that song. That's got a ragtime piano. 
in it. It's probably written by Scott Joplin. Well, it's one of those, you know, that's true. It wasn't written by Scott Joplin, but you, you can make the same argument as, remember the, the worst song ever we did, which was uh, Legendary Stardust Cowboys song, Paralyzed. Yes. Well, that song had a guitar in it, and I like guitars, so ergo, <laughs> I, I, I should probably like that song. But no, I, I actually do like that song. But yes, while I like ragtime music... I hate the Pipkins. <laughs> hate the Pipkins. And give me that ding. <laughs> All right. Moving on to November the 25th, 1947. American Emmy-winning actor John Lauriquette, probably best known as the narrator at the beginning of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. But also, I guess... He was uh, Dan Fielding on my favorite sitcom of all time, Night Court. Oh. Which he won- yeah, he won the Emmy uh, from that one. So that's how you know him. Uh, I think he's best known for the character of private detective Willis in the movie Second Sight. <laughs> that he started with Bronson Pinchot, a film that was on cable TV approximately 786,000 times when I was a child. Uh, lest we forget, he was in Stripes. He was. Yes. He was in Stripes. And he was also in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. I don't remember where he was in that, but I remember him in Stripes. Yeah. Accidentally pulling the pin out of the grenade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, for the longest time, I thought that movie ended with the basic training. Oh, no, no. It goes all... They, they end up... Oh, I know. It's a, like yeah, it's got its own built-in the sequel. The War would have been. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. But yeah, John Larroquette, he did the narration at the beginning of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1970, I think that's 74. And whenever they did the the remake in 2003, he did the narration for that one as well. Oh. Yep. They brought, they brought him back around for that. So good for you, John. All right. Moving on to the 26th. November 26, 1922, uh, cartoonist and erstwhile studier and portrayer of human foibles, Charles M. Schultz is born. For those of you who don't know, I can't imagine who you are. Uh, All right, hold on. Back up. You just used a lot of words over there. Yes. Human what? Foibles? Yep. Please define. Did I drop another one on you? Oh, okay. Sort of uh, the idiosyncrasies that people have, as illustrated by his characters. Very good. Yes. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. (laughs) Today's word of the day is brought to you by... Dollar Shave Club. Yes, I'm happy to, to spring the occasional word you don't know on you. But yes, Charles Charles M. Schultz started publishing his comics in newspapers. I think they were in seven papers to start off in the 1950s and uh-huh. carried right up until uh, they're still in the papers now, even though he's he's been deceased for a few decades. Uh, fun fact uh, about uh, our good friend Charles Schultz. Do you know where he was first published? Uh, no, I don't. I'm going to he guess it was somewhere wrote, in the Midwest, like the Chicago no, Tribune. No. Wow. He was a, a young lad who wrote a letter to Ripley's Believe It or Not and included a drawing of his dog wow. and got published in Ripley's Believe It or Not. Huh. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a cool thing. Yeah. I We just talked about uh, the great pumpkin Charlie Brown a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Uh, so we've, we've said a lot about Charles Schultz already. There's a legendary... Uh, incident that happened over at this house when I was a kid. I think I brought it up before with the uh, Snoopy Come Home television special. Yes. You've seen it? I have. Did it destroy me for several weeks? It did. Six or seven years old when that came on television. I'm watching it around the house and Snoopy's going to leave and he's going to go live with his original owner and I started crying. And my father was like, what's the matter with you? And I was like, Snoopy's not going to be around anymore. And my father thought that was the funniest thing. And for years, <laughs> for years on end, if any time Snoopy come home was coming on, he's like, now don't cry. It's like, all right, leave me alone. Oh. I was having a moment, okay? You know, it's it's good to show those emotions, <laughs> Bill. It's always good. That means you're a healthy person. I could still whistle the song from... Uh, that I can't do. I, won't I only do it watched now. it once. Oh. That movie's like Up. I watched Up once oh. and was like, oh, yeah, F you. Oh, I've only seen it like twice. And, and I cried both yeah. times. But I can still remember the... Yeah, I remember that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and then wrapping up the birthdays, 
November the 27th, 1955, William Sanford Nye, a.k.a. Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill, Bill, Bill. He's one of my favorite talk show guests, especially if he finds himself interviewing with someone who wants to sort of argue. Because Bill Nye has Mm -hmm. very little time to to not tell you, (laughs) to try and dissuade you from being an idiot and and is very good at doing that in very short order. I like Bill Nye a lot. I used to like his show when it was on Saturday morning TV back in the uh, late 80s and early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I'm astonished that his rep has carried on the way that it has, considering the number of people who just haven't from that time period in that niche market. But Bill Nye is one who's managed to stay in the public consciousness and become an, uh, an advocate for the environment and for sustainable living and recycling and all kinds of stuff. So do you remember living up here in New England? Um, do you remember some years ago Deflate Gate? I do indeed. With the, uh, with, uh, the Super Bowl ball I that Tom Brady threw. Yeah, uh, well, no, it wasn't a Super Bowl ball. It was like a playoff game. That led to the Super Bowl. But yeah, uh, your friend of mine, Tom Brady, liked the footballs a little bit like softer. And there was like a a regulation to how much they could be deflated. And the, the the balls were like below that. And... Of course, you know, big football fans and Patriot fans are going to be rabid about it. And they were like, well, that's because the air is cold. And, and, you know, the air inside shrank because it was cold. That's why they were deflated. It's like, yeah, that's totally not how it works because the football would have shrank too. Everything would have shrank. That's the, and, and Bill Nye actually came out, right, and was like saying that. He goes, yeah, that's not the way footballs work. And it was describing, you know, the way. But he also admitted that he was a fan of the, I think it was the 49ers that they were playing against. I had a friend over here, and he actually said this statement. F*** Bill Nye. He denied his own science and said that the, and, you know, said that footballs don't deflate like that. And I'm like, denied his own science. Man, you got to really, really love a football team to just like, make up facts yeah. like that. <laughs> yep. We would have won, too, if they let us change the rules. Yeah. We would have won, too, if we would have been on a completely different planet where molecules don't <laughs> shrink at the same rate. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> where where molecules uh, shrink the in, inside of a football in, in over the course of 30 or 40 seconds. Right. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, F- Bill Nye says. Uh, all right. Um, hey, uh, Jeff, you know what I really like? Segways. I do too. Yeah. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, we have several returning categories that we use for the worst song ever. And one of those categories is who the hell gave you a microphone? Right. Uh, at, <laughs> at this point in time, we are talking about the number one single. Nope. Did it go to number one? Let me look. I don't think it did. No, it never did. The uh, the number two single. <laughs> yeah, number two, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The number two in more ways than one, yeah. By legendary comedic actor and singer, Eddie Murphy, with his hit song, party all the time i've got a lot to say about this song so let's just get the clip out of the way and go about this song too i'm gonna i'm Ugh. gonna say something that is uncharacteristic for me while well, I, I do not like this song as sung by eddie murphy yeah. i can imagine how good this song would be if it was sung by the original writer rick james even though it was sort of written yes in, i'm gonna guess for him which was like a cocaine 50 second binge right because the song is <laughs> dumb as 
I'll get out. Even though the song sounds like it took five minutes to write, Rick James produced it. And it yep. still sounds good. Even if Eddie Murphy, he can't sing. He's like Bruce Willis. He can't sing. He sings well. He sings better than somebody that can't sing. Like, he sings better than I do. But this was 1985. You couldn't get much bigger than Eddie Murphy in 1985. No, it's true. What? He had Beverly Hills Cop? He could have put out an album of, like, Eddie Murphy burps. And people would be like, that is the best burp I've ever heard in my life. I used to go to our high school dances, Bill. I went to as many of them as I could in 85, 86. And yep. when this song would come on for the four or five months that it was really popular, like everyone would scream. <laughs> and even then I thought, like, really? I don't know. Maybe it's because it follows like Easy Lover by Phil Collins that, you know, this, oh. sound, this song sounds like death metal. But Eddie Murphy's voice is like, is it just in the range to be irritating tone wise? One of the reviews that I'm reading right now real quick. They, uh, the Sun Sentinel gave it, yeah, I mean, they're on our side because they gave it the worst single of 1985. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they called it a catchy up-tempo dance number. That's that's fine. But also said that Murphy adds nothing to it but his yeah. ego. Yeah, it's not a good song. <laughs> and and, and there's, anybody could sing it and it's it would still be, eh. That's probably its claim to fame. You know what's hilarious about the video for the song? Like, you would think with Eddie Murphy being a comedian that he would have a funny video. And the video is hilarious, but not intentionally funny. Right. What's funny about the video is, you know, he's over there in the recording studio. He's got the headphones right. on and he's singing and all that. And then you have like Rick James, who wrote yep. the song. And then you have all the engineers and all the producers. And they're all like shaking their fists like, yeah, yeah. Like they're all excited about how like good this sounds. It's like. You know, I've only been in a recording studio, in a recording studio environment, maybe like once or twice in my life. And that is not the way it goes. <laughs> I've heard stories about the Ramones whenever they recorded with Phil Spector. And Johnny Ramone, all he had to do was just like that opening chord to Rock and Roll High School, that brrrm. That's all he had to do. And he would go brrrm. And then Phil Spector would start punching the soundboard. And like, dude, just go, that's all I have to do. But like Phil Spector was like such a perfectionist. And don't tell me, don't tell me that Rick James isn't that level of perfectionist because you know he is. Maybe he's not insane like Phil Spector. There can be arguments made by, you know, certain stories that have gone around that I don't need to repeat about both of those two men. Right. But the other guy too there, Bob Ezrin, who we talked about when we were talking about Kiss, He's another one that's like a, just a crazy mad person in the recording studio. That video for Party All the Time, that is not what recording studios look like. For starters, it's entirely way too well lit. Yeah, it's that that's, that's <laughs> that has as many toes in reality as the rotoscoped ending of American Pop does. <laughs> and I haven't watched that video in a long time. I used to roll my eyes when it came around on MTV because it was like, oh, this, is, this song is like four minutes long. Yeah. And it just oh. doesn't shut up. And there's a nine and a half minute extended 12 inch version. Oh, if you the, really yeah, wanna, the, the Gitmo pressing. I know that one. If you really want to hate yourself, the name of the album that, because it's not just one song, he recorded a whole album. Yeah. And the name of the album is How Could It Be? Which is an outstanding question to be asking, Eddie. Right. How? How does this happen? Right. And the worst part about it, like the 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 insult, the biggest insult about the whole thing is. That's not his only album. Yeah. Eddie Murphy has several albums, at least three. There might be more. Yep. Yeah. And I, I mean, when you're Eddie Murphy, you, you sort of make the kind of money you do. You can make multiple albums. That's just yep. how it rolls. Although the subsequent albums, I don't think they sell anywhere near as well as this one did. If this one sold well, remember the single sold well, but I don't remember the album selling well. For the 280 people that are like, oh, my God, the new Eddie Murphy album's out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and rush down to the store to be told that it has to be special ordered because it was printed in so few numbers that they have yeah. to order them and it takes six weeks to get them. Eh, right. And, uh, it got a gold. It got a gold award. Mm-hmm. It sold 500,000 copies. But giving the level of Eddie Murphy's fame, it, it should have sold better, but it, but it did, totally did not. Yeah, the other albums that he recorded were called So Happy, which sold, I'm looking at now, 12, 
13 copies. Yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. and then the follow-up after that called Love's All Right, which uh, barely even has a Wikipedia page. I think they made you buy a copy of that record when you saw the clumps. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Before we wrap up the show, I have something much better to talk about than Eddie Murphy. Uh, yes, I have to talk about sword fighting. Yes. Read into that as you will. Uh, which actor has had more sword fighting scenes than any other actor? Now, I asked a, clarify, a clarifying question at the beginning of this show. So the clarifying question American, was... If it, these were American movies? These are American movies, right? Yeah, yep. And the answer is yes. So I am going to say Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn is an Excellent guess, but no, that is not the answer. Coming in with 17 movies, including two that have been, uh, you know, within the last 20 years, your friend and mine, Christopher Lee, has had more sword fighting scenes than oh, yeah. any other actor. Yeah, okay. The last two were Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. I would argue, I'm not going to, but I could argue that Technically, all the sword fights that he did in Hammer and Amicus films are not American films. They're made in England. They were released in England first. They're European movies. Okay, so yeah, all right. and and well, he's a British actor. And he's so a maybe British my actor. clarifying, maybe my clarifying, you weren't going to guess Lee anyway. So yeah. shut up. So I wasn't, <laughs> but I would, I could make the argument. And if and if you'd said it was anywhere in the world, I probably would have guessed the Shintaro Katsu who played. Zatoichi in 27 Zatoichi movies and 100 episodes of a TV show called Zatoichi. All right. So anyway, Christopher Lee. Uh, But that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Happy Thanksgiving, Jeff. Happy Thanksgiving, Bill. Greetings from Cincinnati. (laughs) All right. Bye, guys. Good night, everybody. A special shout out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. You know, you can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. And don't forget to subscribe. You may just find out your favorite song is the worst song ever.